We absolutely love Drink Arepa here at Keegan & Company. Not only is this a brain performance drink, but it was designed and tested by neuroscientists in New Zealand made from all natural ingredients. When I was playing professional footy, I was constantly looking for ways to be better physically and mentally. Now, podcasting, study and work, I focus on training, good quality food and sleep, where I prioritise having a bottle of a repper when I want to be switched on mentally. Gives me mental clarity and I just feel like I'm on. Head to drinkatrepper.com and use the bespoke code Keegan25 for 25% discount. That's Keegan25 at drinkarepper.com. Keegan and Company. It's Keegan and Company, the company you keep. That's it. That's got to be it. Samantha Gash, how are you? I'm wow. I'm looking forward to having a bit of a, a chat. I'm so excited. I've got so many questions to ask. Like I was telling you before, like I'm really keen to talk about the ultra marathons, the, the $1.5 million that you've raised for charity, Survivor. But I think where... I kind of want to start is what was young Sam like? Was young Sam the confident, bubbly, ultra marathon girl, running girl when she was younger or was she, what was she like? Young Sam. Well, young Sam was probably just as short as old Sam now, <laughs> middle-aged Sam. Um, I think there was elements of me that were brave I but there was other sides of me I think that were very uncomfortable with how I presented myself um I you know I I often say to people that like so much of your social currency when you're a kid um really comes down to your abilities in sport um and you know I was very uncoordinated um the reality is I'm still very uncoordinated today I don't believe that at all (laughs) I don't believe that if you watched Survivor there was this one challenge where you had to throw like a, a hook with a bag on the other end and my like aim was so bad that everyone got to the last part to do the puzzle. And I was so, there's this horrible tweet that's like, in a faraway land, I still see Sam trying <laughs> to throw the hook. Um, so no, like coordination is definitely still not my jam. Um, and I think, you know, like I wasn't comfortable with my body. Um, you know, I feel like I was often like considered to not be not particularly good at certain things. Um, so I had a tendency of really avoiding the things that I knew that I wasn't good at and the way I became confident was really just focusing and channeling my energy into the things that I knew I could shine in. And what were those things, the things that you shined in? Uh, I would say performing arts. Yeah. You know, I used to think of myself as an extrovert and that's shifted over the years, but I was very comfortable like getting up on stage and presenting and being a character. I was always like the low status weirdo characters, like, you know, the impoverished witch or, you know, um, so that was, I loved character roles. Um, and I think academia, I was yeah. probably more confident in um, English and communications, not so much maths and science, but yeah, so academia and I think performing arts. So at what point do you think, okay, well, I'm going to start running ultra marathons. Like what was the progression from young Sam, who you said was uncoordinated and a little bit shy to public speaking and running 3000 kilometers across India? Like what was the progression there? So in some ways, the progression was very gradual. And then there were moments where I just kind of, I guess, extended myself very dramatically yeah. with not much, much past experience. In my final few years of high school, um, I would get high levels of stress um, because, as I said to before, like I thought that academia was my thing and I placed a lot of pressure on myself to perform in the thing that I was meant to be good at. And sometimes the more pressure you place on yourself, the more you kind of trip up because you make things too complicated. 
Um, I remember I failed like my contract law exam at university and it was like the world was crashing down on me and it was a subject that I knew the most in. It's because I almost like wanted to pour every bit of knowledge that I had into a question. I didn't even read the question, but like long story short, my mum used to always be like, you just need to get outdoors. Like yeah. stop doing the English papers, just go out sto- outside and just have a circuit breaker. Yeah. And I'd always be like, no, I don't want to go outside, you know. And so I would go outside and I lived near Listerfield Lake and it was like a six kilometre loop. Um, and I would always go kind of towards the end of the day. It was dusk. There was kangaroos jumping by. The sun was setting. The trails were pretty easy. And I would just kind of walk, jog, like amble my way around this loop. And I remember feeling that in that period of my life, in that setting, even though I wasn't good at this thing of running, it was the only time, perhaps because I wasn't good at it, I had to be quite focused and I was quite present and therefore I wasn't really fretting about my papers that I had done the day before or the exam that I had in a couple of months' time. I was just in that thing then. Um, And that's kind of the beauty of doing things that you're not naturally great at. Like you have to pour your energy a bit more. It doesn't come naturally to you. Um, and so I guess I just gradually started to do it more as a mindful technique. And we never talked about it as mindfulness. When, when you're a little grumpy, yeah, like, I just want to run outside, yeah, get outside, right? Well, yeah, it was just like I want to do something that kind of calms me down. Yeah. Uh, and then, I, you know, the good thing about like when you keep doing something consistently, you do get a little bit better at it and you kind of start to see the gains and what was really, really hard becomes a little bit easier. And then the hill that you used to always walk up, you start to be able to kind of jog walk up and then you can run up and then maybe you can try and sprint up it. So you have all these milestones for progression. Uh, and then I did my first marathon in, 20, oh God, maybe 2003. Is this, because I know that you went through and it was either acting or lawyer like that was the they were the two options when you were growing up right did you ever think that you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna run a marathon it was all like being an ultra marathon runner when you were growing up or was it always oh no no law because you were quite academic as a kid yeah it was definitely law or performing arts I mean the running thing I didn't even think of that as a career path and I didn't even know what ultra running was at this point so I obviously knew like people at the Olympics run a marathon but you know like I don't look like that. Like, I don't run like that. So it's, you know, and that's the only way I saw the profession of a runner actually being. So, no, like, in terms of the professionalization of me being an endurance athlete, and I always kind of almost cringe because, yeah, I do make part of my living through that sport, but in a really a far more business, you know, kind of way. It's kind of expanded. It's not in the natural way that maybe you used to think of your career as an athlete. Uh, but, no, I, I kind of just did my first marathon I was shit at it. Really? But I, Oh, yeah. I mean, I was shit in terms of like I nearly quit. Like I really wasn't – I struggled when I got to that 32-kilometer mark. Um, I think most people do. But at the time, it was a very personal experience. Like no one else is suffering. It's just me. Mm. Uh, and I had a beautiful girlfriend who I was running with at the time, and she really dragged my sorry ass to the finishing <laughs> line. And then I got to the finishing line, and it was in a euphoric moment. Yeah. Like this is huge. Like – 42 kilometers, like a couple of months ago, I, I couldn't even do a half marathon, but the process of committing to the marathon and then training for it as what I thought was a once in a lifetime experience as opposed to an everyday experience for me, um, it was really transformative. I mean, that was a time in my life where I was trying a lot of different things. Were you practicing law at this time? No, I was a law student. Okay. Um, so like, yeah, I, I still was going to be either a lawyer or an actress and home and away <laughs> back then I was like, Kate Ritchie, you're my idol. Yeah, um, yeah. and 
Kate Ritchie, you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it, it wasn't until years later that I saw it more as a profession. At the time, it was really an outlet. Right. Right. And so because what was, so you did your first marathon, you got through it, 32 kilometers, not sure if we're going to finish, but we finished, right? We, mm-hmm. we finished. Finished. So what's next? You're still going through law? Is it? Is it still, what was the next? Was it the the four deserts? deserts? Right. The well, four deserts? Was that the next step? Well, it was because literally the next day I was sitting at a table with a lady called Linda Quirk. She was a 54-year-old woman from the US. Mm. Uh, She's based in Florida and she was doing seven marathons and seven continents maybe in a year and she had put on like the Melbourne Marathon Facebook group like hi my name's Linda I'm coming over from the US I'd love it if someone would show me a bit around Melbourne um, I don't know anything about the course or anything and I saw it like maybe two weeks before the race and I remember reaching out to her going oh you mean my friends would love to you know take you for a run and so we met up with her and the day after it, she's like, I'd love to shout you guys. Like we were young uni students and she was like, I'd love to shout you guys for a dinner. And we were sitting at this like very like luxy dinner. This isn't us. I was like, nah, I'm like, we don't belong here. We should get out of our tracks advance. Yeah. And she talked about the four deserts and she had committed to doing that. I think it was, this was like 2007 or eight. Oh, my years are so wrong. Okay, let's go back into my time chronology I think this was like 2007 2008 and she was signing up to do these races in 2010 and she's like I'm gonna do it and I remember looking at this woman who maybe took like five and a half hours to do the marathon and here she's saying something to me that I thought was impossible like how could people run you know these races are 250 kilometers um, in the hottest driest coldest and windiest deserts on earth and you are carrying all the supplies you need everything yeah everything yeah and I remember listening to this lady going like, I can't even like walk up a flight of, st- you know, up the law library stairs right now. And she's talking about doing these back-to-back marathons. And I, I was really inspired by her. Like I don't use that word easily, but I remember I was, yeah, she, she, was, she influenced me. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, I want to do one to be near you. Uh, and so I signed up to do the Atacama Desert. And where's that, sorry? That's, that's in Chile. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to do one. And I'm going to try and like take off six months of university and make this an experience like before I start becoming a corporate lawyer. Uh, And so I thought I'll do, I applied for a placement in a capital defense office in Texas. I thought that was kind of relatively close to Chile. And I was like, I'll do this race. I'll do this three months in um, Texas working on a death row campaign. And then I'll go back home and life will just be back to normal. And maybe I'll be ready to sit behind a desk and be a lawyer. (laughs) How wrong you were? Yeah, I mean, I guess I was because, you know, some people can have these experiences and it, you know, it reinforces that they want to do exactly what they had planned to do beforehand. But for me, it just expanded my view on on what was possible. Like I started to see so many different ways in, in how people live their life and I had changed through those experiences. That's the biggest thing with traveling and, and being open to other experiences. Like I remember when I was medically retired from footy, there mm-hmm. were so many things that I wanted to do. Like there yeah. were so many things that, cause I was just interested. Like I was interested in jujitsu. I was interested in in running, like running marathons. So I signed up and did the um, one in the Blue Mountains, the oh, UTA. UTA. I did the, it's me, awesome. It was great. Me and a guy who I met at the City to Surf, we just did the City to Surf, like yeah. very like low key. And I just met this guy and he's like, we should sign up and do the 22. 
the 22, that's a nice little intermediate. Like we, we don't run, like I'm not built like a runner at all. There's no such thing. Let's just like stop that right now. There's no such thing as built like a runner. Really? Yeah, not with trail running. Like, well, I don't know if you're a little brick that used to play football, a little nah, knuckle dragger nah, nah. footy player that I don't know about that. Sure. Like I think obviously there's sometimes being lighter can help you up the climbs sure. but you know the longer you go the sometimes that robustness actually serves you well like that you know strength in the glutes and the strength in the quads that can yeah. serve you well down the hill so like i i really think we are walk, moving away from like what you need to look like to do these things well that's great to hear anyway we did the we did the 20 no we went to sign up for the 22 but the 22 was sold out <laughs> so we were like well let's do the 50 so we did the 50 on very little training anyway we got through it and as we were running through it we we're like we're either going to be love this and we're going to do the 100 and we're going to go overseas and do it all and then after the 50 i was cooked i was like yeah. i can't I, I love doing this but i'm going to put this on the side but it's like I know you it's you've obviously done so much and you've said yes to so much but how do you figure out what to say no to because mm. there are so many opportunities out there right and that's a big thing that I struggled with coming out of sport like saying yes to everything mm. then realize you have to say no to a few things how do you de decipher the two Oh yeah I talk about this <laughs> I think about this a lot because it, you know when I was saying a yes to a lot of stuff I would say I was more in my early 20s and that was a period of my life where I wanted to learn more about myself I didn't really know where I wanted to sink my teeth into and so I needed to have a vast range of experiences to kind of get a gauge on what was important to me on a value proposition on what I felt like I was good at on what I felt I could make a meaningful contribution in what lit my fire up to do day and day again um, so I think in my early 20s yes was really important now it's not so much yeah. that I, I do struggle to not say no. Um, sorry, I do struggle to say no um, because I get excited, um, particularly if it's a great idea. Or and I have a lot. I'm an ideas person, yeah. but I think once you know what you care about, your no is really powerful because you have to do that to preserve the yes. So in fact, your no's are your yeses. If that makes sense, it's like a reinforcement. Like I'm saying no to this thing, whilst it might be a great idea and I'm not going to have FOMO, I'm going to have JOMO, the joy of missing yeah, out. Okay. Yeah, let's good. bring that yeah, in. That's good. That's um, good. Yeah, my friend said that to me once and I was like, because I'd be like, oh, I wish I could do that. And he's like, no, it's the year of JOMO. And I'm like, what's JOMO? He's like, the joy of missing out. And I'm like, yeah, because you say no to something because you've already said yes to something else. You said yes to it for a reason and like be in that thing and those other things will come up later if they are important enough. On the flip side of that though, there'd be so many people who are stuck in their careers, stuck in the sport they're in, stuck in their little bubble of whatever it is. Was there a moment where you were like, you know what, I've just got to start saying yes to something? Yeah, I mean, I think before I started work, I did that. I was conscious that work was going to have me physically in the same place for a long time for many hours of the day. You know, working as a corporate junior lawyer you never know when your day is done so it's not like your typical eight to five or eight to six you could have a partner walk past your desk at 5 p.m going oh we now have this job you need to do this and you've got to stay back till it's done and that was hard for me like not knowing I could I felt like I had to stop saying yes to anything in the evenings because I felt like I was always letting people down and I couldn't be like integrous to my like yeah I'll go and do dinner with you I'll go and do a you know, a boxing class or whatever it was. I felt like I was always just saying, oh, sorry, I can't make it, I can't make it. And didn't feel like I was showing up well to my friendships because I, you know, was a baby lawyer and you've got to you've got to do your time. 
So it was a period of time when I was at law when all of a sudden I started to feel like I was complaining about my job. And I've always felt that if you find yourself repeatedly complaining about something, you have to kind of remember that you're in the driver's seat. So you either have to find a way to stop complaining and that could be like to, you know, reconnect to why you're doing what you're doing. You know, maybe I was just getting in a negative trap. Sometimes when things are hard and they seem mundane, like we can think that everything is bad and it's not always the case and maybe you just need to reframe your thinking to enjoy what you're doing. So that's one solution. But if you know deeply on a cellular level, you're not meant to be doing what you're doing, then the only way to get out of that is for you to make that decision to, to change it. And that's really freaking hard, um, particularly, you know, I studied for 10 years to be a lawyer, maybe because it took me a long time to finish the degree. I was <laughs> is that tra- normal? <laughs> oh, no. I traveled and then I started my, you know, yes, doing yeah. racing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, like, I extended my um, law and performing arts degree out by a decade. Um, but... You know, I was building to this moment to be a to be a lawyer, and I finally got there, and it was incredibly competitive. And it's really hard once you know it's so hard to get to something. You finally get there, and it's not what you thought it was going to be. Do you have a purpose? Do you talk about purpose often? Yeah, I'm. I'm definitely. I'm definitely connected to the things that I'm passionate about, and I like to do it for a purpose beyond myself. I think that formula of passion, purpose, and process is really powerful. Ooh, alliteration of PPP. Yeah, I like that. I like yeah. that a lot. <laughs> yeah, but I think like your passion is your drive. It what excites you. It's often the vehicle. So for me, like adventure and exploration, connecting to different cultures and ways of thinking and being, I'm very passionate about that. Over years, my purpose is very tied into contribution and the way – I'm driven to contribution can look different. Like I like to be connected to a community. Um, I like to be able to work in the social impact space, which kind of roots back to like I wanted to be a lawyer for the UN um, early days. And I think social impact and social justice has been always a big driver for me. And I thought I would explore that through being a lawyer. But it's funny how sometimes your vehicle looks different. So the passion, the way your outlet for, the driver of that purpose can evolve over time. And does that fit into bringing in world vision for the yeah. 300,000 Ks that you did across India? Because this is what I really want to talk about is the, because yeah. you did the four deserts, you did the four yeah. deserts Grand Slam or what it was called. And then after that, it was India. What what made you pick India? What well, made you pick, you know that, what, I'm going to go India 3,000 kilometers across. Okay. So there is a stepping stone because, you know, sometimes people go like, oh my gosh, you ran across India. Like, you know, the numbers of that were like, 77 days, three and a half thousand plus Ks. And it's it's quite extreme, but there were actually a few more steps along the way. And okay. I think the biggest, so the first step was obviously the four deserts. Yeah. And that was for me, like working out my mental and physical capabilities, um, which at the time I thought was pretty low. And then all of a sudden I was like, if you throw yourself into an experience, a lot of the time you do just show up to it. Like you meet yourself at what the challenge is. It's hard, it's messy. You cry along the way, you vomit on the side of the road, you suffer, you struggle. But if you're committed enough and you know why you're doing it, you get through it. And then the bar's raised. And then for me, the next bar was like, can I connect this experience of running for something deeper than myself? Because there were times in between these where I was doing like these really bigger races and I started to be like, why am I doing this? Like I was doing this race in the Himalayas. It was 222 kilometers. 
I had an entire crew that were there just for me and I was at this mountain pass, you know, over 5,000 metres. There was a whiteout, like we were on a really narrow road that had a sharp edge to nowhere and I just looked at my team and they were just totally in service for me and I was incoherent, dehydrated, altitude sickness and I was like, I I don't, this doesn't resonate with me, like all these people here just for me and I'm just trying to push my physical capabilities. And so I was like, okay, cool. Well, you know, you can, you have grit. Can you have grit for a reason? And so the following year or two, I decided to do a traverse actually across South Africa's Freedom Trail. Okay. And that was a 2000 kilometer journey um, from Cape Town to, from Peter Marksburg to Cape Town. Wow. And to be honest, I almost, maybe before Nepal, this felt like my most extreme adventure. Um, and it was my first one in a way because we had to kind of, there's this trail in South Africa called the Freedom Trail. It was crafted 10 years after freedom in South Africa. Uh, it's typically done on mountain bike. Yeah. And even as a mountain biker, it's wild. Like you're grabbing your bike and jumping over like fences into game reserves. There's wild animals. You try and coordinate your sleeps to be with like farming families along the way. It's wow. incredibly remote. Yeah. You barely see people. You don't see anything. Up. The only road you see is a district road. So it's like a dirt road. Um, and you're very much dependent on the hospitality of the families who you Hopefully they're cooking of, well. Well, yeah. And <laughs> I, was a, I was a vegetarian at the time and like they were like, so you eat chicken? And I was, you know, so many lessons along this. Like I was so rigid into like, I'm a vegetarian. So I decided to eat like the sides of vegetables and it wasn't enough and my body broke apart. And sometimes you have to accept where you are and you have to kind of go, yeah, sure. In my everyday life, I might be a vegetarian and that serves me really well when I have a, an abundance of vegetables that I can choose from. But here I'm in the middle of rural South Africa where the people who are hosting you don't understand what you're talking about and you need fuel. Were you doing that run for something bigger than yourself? Did yeah, you have a charity partner with you? Yeah. The very first time it was with Save the Children and we were exploring the high cost of feminine hygiene products for women in sub-Saharan Africa. And that causal link of girls not being able to go to school because of one week out of the month, they wouldn't have any products. They would be in a really shamed environment. They would be using like newspapers, rags, like literally whatever they could to kind of like keep themselves clean. Um, And then they would just not go to school ultimately because they'd miss so much. Um, And so that was the campaign. But here is the clincher and how everything is about building blocks. We barely saw a girl. So even though this project, our purpose was to, um, you know, support young girls as they are experiencing, you know, their menstruation during school years and our vehicle, so the passion component to it was like traversing a country, passion and purpose didn't sync up. And so what happened is like uh, I was running with a lady um, from the UK, Mimi Anderson. We got lost in the world of the passion. Yeah. And we were trying to raise funds and we did actually reach our fundraising targets, but I, f- I felt this disconnect between passion and purpose. And when I got to the end, I was like, wow, we had a wild, wild ride. But I was like, I don't know if I experientially understood enough of our purpose. So you wanted to have hands-on impact. Yeah. To be like hands-on impact, to be able to communicate about it, to be able to make it. The fundraising is amazing. And the first time you do some of these big projects, People do fundraise to for you because they're. It's like your first time you're running across the country. 
it gets harder the more and more times you do this. Like, yeah. because people are like, well, we know you can do that stuff. You know, even though every time it's really freaking hard, yeah. it, there's not the excitement factor as much as when someone's doing it for the first time. It's like mind blowing. It's like with Ned, when Ned, first Ned Rockman, first time yep. ran across, I caught up with Ned last Friday. Yeah. And obviously incredible human. Totally. Ties in the passion and helping people and was obviously doing it for himself. He wanted to push himself, but he was also doing it for something bigger than himself in homelessness and with Immobilize. Um, when you were running, obviously you wanted that hands-on impact. Did that tie into the world vision coming on board with the India run? And because I, I watched um, Run oh, India. Did you watch it? I watched the What'd whole, you think? I loved it. Okay. I, I I really loved those, those documentaries and seeing yeah. the team that you had and seeing the really core, like vulnerable state that you were in where, you know, you just had run 50, 70 kilometers that day on the the tarmac was just burning and you had cars running past you and you're actually capturing that. And then there's a moment in the film where you're just crying, you're breaking down. You're like, you just said, I can't do this. Mm. And to me, that's like as raw as emotion as you could get. But then you had to go, well, you didn't have to, but you had the opportunity to go into the villages and yeah. talk to the young kids and, and talk to the girls. And you said, well, you said, and I might be misquoting, but you're like, this gives me energy like yeah. to go actually go into these villages. Yeah. I mean, you spot on. So not long after I got back from South Africa, a friend from university called me, uh, Heath Evans, and he's like, Sam, what's next? Which is often repeated to me after I finish something. Yeah. And I've now learned to go like a bloody good rest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but back then I was like, when I was running across South Africa, like you have the wheels turning of what could be next. I mean, I'm sure, you know, people like Ned, like as he's doing that Australia run, you've got a lot of time in your head. Um, and so you think of a lot of different things. And one project that I wanted to do was this run across India, again, exploring the barriers to quality education, but looking about it a lot more broadly, going like in each different area of India, the reasons why a child can't go to school are unique to that area, unique to that area's cultural landscape, geographical landscape, you know, social, you know, situation. Uh, and so... At that time, Heath worked for World Vision and he's like, I said to him, I want to do a project in India. I wanted to do it related to education. And it started a maybe three-year preparation phase Wow. where I feel like I kind of became like <laughs> an honorary World Vision employee. <laughs> <laughs> Spending so much time with the crew. So, so much time. Like those guys in that team who I would say were like, they were change makers at World Vision at the time. They were fighting against... You know, it was a really complicated project, like having a small white woman traverse India obviously raises a lot of um, concerns for safety. Um, is even something like that possible, like to do three and a half? I don't, how, do you remember how many Ks it was? It was, I thought it was 3,000. It might have been just yeah, under so, 3,000. Yeah, I think it was a bit, yeah. yeah. I, I was like, it's so funny how yeah. like these numbers mean nothing anymore. Because yeah, like I could say 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. Yeah. It's just a lot. Yeah. You know? yeah. You're just running it's a more lot. more than what I can conceive. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's why like for people, it's like there gets to be a point where they're like, okay, the numbers are almost like meaningless to me. Like why are you doing this? Or like what's your personal experience? Like what can I connect to? So my big thing for this project was to make sure that the run didn't overtake the why. Yeah. And so we like created the most bizarre route across India from the west to the east. So from like Jaslamir in uh, Rajasthan across to a very heavily matrilineal community in the east called Shillong. Yeah. 
um, where the opposite isn't patriarchal, but it is where decision-making is vested far more on the hands of the women in that community. Okay. Quite poetic considering why I was doing the yeah, run. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time, but you know, these are the things that you learn as you're traversing a country. It becomes like a history lesson. Yeah. And so um, every couple of days I would sync up a visit with what's called an ADP, an Area Development Project of World Vision, and I would go into those communities and learn about whatever that community was facing, supported by the team at World Vision. I mean, they were amazing to get me that type of access. It was heavy logistics and coordination. Um, it meant that I would sometimes do the most bizarre way to get from point to point. It was definitely not the most direct way. Oh, obviously a route <laughs> that no one had run before. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, everyone goes to me, is that a world record? And I'm like, no, no one's ever going to make that route happen. <laughs> it's, it's a record just, for you. It's like an experience for me. And um, so I would go into communities in the west of the country where topics such as child marriage, the prevalence of the sex trade were really high. And then we, I wanted to hit the Himalayas because I just love the mountains and the way it shifts people's thinking and you know where you've got food scarcity you've got the volatility of the landscape which means you know we they had just had huge flooding in that area and the literal infrastructure of the roads just wash away which is something I just experienced again in Nepal but in these really remote places you know like you can sometimes not be able to get, you know, um, fuel, meaning like wood or fire. So your whole your home is really cold during winter. You can't get um, access to food. Any kind of crops that you've planted could be flooded away, and so therefore you, you know, you have no nutrition for yourself, and you can't sell it, which might have been your, you know, economy for the your family and your community. There's so many really prevalent issues, which often mean that like kids can't get to a school room because they've got to focus on helping the family. Would you lean on the leaders in the communities? Is that how you would find out each issue in each village? Was or did World Vision already have a pre sort of pretty good idea of what was happening? Yeah, this is what was so amazing about them. It's why I'm a big supporter of World Vision because I've seen it. Like everything that World Vision does is community led, not directed by you know the Australia team that yeah. doesn't really know what's happening in India. Um, they work with the Indian World Vision team. They might get funding from Australian donors through. Um, uh, child sponsorship or maybe through government programs uh, and then it's a combination of like the World Vision India team or perhaps another organisation that's working there and has received the funding and then the leaders from that organisation and they create teams and World Vision will work within that community for potentially up to 20 years before they go like it's complete the project is completely handed over to the community to for it to be self-sustaining. Yeah, okay. What's like, because obviously that would be such an eye-opening experience. Like I can't even comprehend, like obviously I watched mm. the film and the film was amazing and it gave great insight, but I can't comprehend how insane that would be. When you came back, what's your day-to-day, like what's your mindset coming back? Is, do you have a mm. sense of obviously gratitude for what, for what we have here and how lucky we are in Australia? Or are you like, you know what, I just have to get back. I have to do the next project. What's the oh. mindset like? I remember there was a day in India, it was so hot, like it was so hot and I was going up this big climb um, up to a, a, I think a village called Puri and I saw this woman on the ground on the road and just she was clearly like what felt like she was at the end of her life and she's on the ground there and she's just crying and we like stopped and she was clearly dehydrated as well. She hadn't eaten. Like, I don't know if she'd been dealing with any other illnesses. No one in my team was medically trained 
to kind of provide medical intervention and also it's a very complicated situation providing medical intervention when you when you can't do a past history um, of that person and you don't like you can't give them something for moving forward but we stopped there and we gave her water and it was literally the most we could really do and I remember as we like kept walking on it was like you felt this despair of like you're trying to make an impact you know you're talking about it. it's going up on social media and you have this thing of a like am I a farce like you know like there's clearly so many people still deeply impacted um what we're going to do is really going to be the smallest drop in the ocean and so you had those moments yeah. during the project and there was times when I was like oh and we're creating like pollution through being in the vehicle that's going across the country like you do start to do an audit of yourself yeah. and go like how much of this is ego like um are my intentions in the right place like I I am proud that I do that kind of due diligence, that I don't get caught up in a train of like, you know, the hype of these experiences because, you know, like sometimes these projects do get recognition and it's like, okay, that's great and all, but what are you driven by? Are you driven by the why? Are you driven by the personal experience? Or are you driven by an external motivator? And I think before you jump into the next thing after you do these things, you have to let the pendulum swing and you have to restore because it's incredible. It's like, you know, when you finish your, you know, sporting career, you don't know which way's up and which way's down. Yeah. And you need to get grounded again into like, what is your everyday reality? And the privilege that our reality is that like, we get to have a bed, we get to have food. Having water, we've got friends. We have, have social family. networks. Yeah. We have, you know, like support within, you know, the Australian healthcare system and, and so, like, I had to just settle back down, regroup, not think of anything next. Um, and then with time, like, I start to craft, you know, like, where I want to go next. But I really try to make that based on, like, what is an internal driver? What's because I believe that is the next space that I want to put my energy into and then it syncs up with my values and the future direction of, of where I want to go. Um, and so, like, I try not to rush that process now. Like, it took me many years after um, doing India before I did another big project. And the next one was actually um, – the next one was also f- – well, it was actually for Australia. It was um, during the bushfires. Yeah. And so this is where I'm – I'd like to say that, like, it doesn't always have to be about my personal experience of pushing my body physically and mentally. You can get caught in a trap where you do these projects and people are like, what's the next big expedition? Can we top it? Yeah, can we top it? Can we top it? it? What's next? And that's – I don't want to be that person. Like, so sometimes I like to do things differently. Like when I did the most recent project across Nepal, the do- the kilometers were dif- were less, um, but like our altitude was higher. But more importantly, like we didn't have a support team. Yeah. So myself and and Jesse Ling, um, she's a Tassie um, oh, Tassie doctor. She's amazing. <laughs> Choose your teammate wisely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, just on your teammates, do you always run with the same crew, or do you like to pick and choose which which crew you run with? No, nah, it's always different. I mean, as I said, I, I've often had support teams, but Nepal, I didn't. Yeah. Um, but I wanted. I now like to share experiences because not only because is it kind of nicer to have someone side by side and you can relive that experience like literally just this morning Jesse and I were messaging each other and I was like because our film's showing at the Gutsy Girls Film Festival right now I said to Jesse oh I'm just looking back through those photos and videos we did so much like we did so much in our 50 days just of the traverse but then in the couple of weeks that we were there before and afterwards as well I'm like I can't believe we saw those things like 
things that so few people will ever get to see. Like we were in these kind of villages that are very Tibetan influenced that really don't ever see tourists. No one was speaking the local language and they were during a festival time. It looked like we were in like, you know, the 15th century, like with the clothes and the mud hut and they were drinking this alcohol and they were trying to get Jesse and I drunk and we're <laughs> like, and we were sleep, sleeping in a cow shed that night. Yeah. And, um, you know, like it's the kind of accommodation we would find along the way. And we were like, no, we can't drink. Like it's, it's already probably not hugely safe for two women to be doing yeah. this. All it takes is one person to try and take advantage of a situation. So we can't drink, but it ended up being this, we pulled out our Nepali phrase guide and we were they really loved that we were trying to speak Nepali. Yeah. We were terrible. Jesse was much better than me, but we were terrible. But they were looking at it and seeing us and we they were laughing at us, but like really it was just this beautiful moment and those are the things that like I really cherish far more than, you know, we went across a country. It's like the the little moments in between that, you know, yeah, it's great that we get to talk about it, but those are the things that I I'll always hold on to. But there's something really there's something that really bonds you with someone when you go through something hard. Like oh. I remember at the start of every, not every preseason, but most preseason before we go into the competition, we do like an army camp or like mm. a preseason camp. And that's when we're, you're sleep deprived, you're, you know, you're not eating, you're not drinking that much, or you're obviously probably hydrating, but probably not as much as what you can. You're doing, you know, PT sessions at one o'clock in the morning where the, you know, instructor's just screaming at you. And then at the end of it, there's like this euphoric moment where, mm. It's like, all right, well, we got through that and we got through it together. And then usually after that, you know, obviously like cracking jokes, you're laughing like, oh, remember when yeah. such and such was crying before? Like you, you start laughing about these things, but it brings you closer together. Yeah. Um, and I guess like when you do these runs that you've done with friends, I'm assuming that ties into everyday life and, and, and being closer in everyday life, right? Yeah. I like that bonding. I mean, I've done things now on, you know, I, I did a 379 kilometer nonstop run across the Simpson Desert. Like on my own, I had a but you know like and even I guess a couple of years ago just after COVID I did a unsupported um, solo run across the Cape to Cape Trail in WA and it was 128 k's and it was just after COVID so just after being in 5k stuck radius around Victoria so couldn't train much and I just wanted I wanted expansive alone personal space and I finished that run and I was like I don't want to be on my own like I went Things shared are powerful. It's like human connection and that space of belonging transcends like a personal experience that is just for you. Like I don't, yeah, I I like calf space and I like moments to myself, but I want to share these like life affirming, life changing experiences with other humans. In, I know I'm obviously talking a lot about the Indian run because that's the one that I got to watch, which was really cool to see. But was there, and it can be any run, or anything in in general, but what's has there been a time throughout these stages where it's just become too much, and you, and you genuinely thought about giving up? And if you mm. thought about giving up, was there any tools that you used to get out of that mind frame or mindset? The one in Nepal is the best example. Um, so that traverse, the one just recently, yeah, yeah, that was probably the. I mean, the one that you saw in India, like going from um, the west to the east, like my body broke down, yeah. like it was so bad like I was in agony I was like hobbling 
I had to like do like 400 meters of walking, yeah. 400 me- 100 meter of running, 400 meters of walking. It really breaks up a day <laughs> into the smallest components, particularly when you're trying to do 70 Ks in a day. Yeah, yeah. It like really talk about like break your goal into small pieces, <laughs> taking that very, very literally. But that still was in my control. And I, it's so funny how like I felt that was out of my control at the time. But now I really have experienced something where it was not in my control. In Nepal, you know, I think I just said like we got hit with um, a, a massive storm that was a result of an earthquake out of Bangladesh. Yeah. And, and all of Nepal really got struck with that. But definitely the Himalayan peaks, like all the, um, the mountaineering expeditions in Manaslu, Everest were all cancelled. There was avalanches, you know, people passed away. It was... So you have tourists passing away who are doing adventures, but then you actually have the locals that mm. are passing away because, you know, a landslide's going through their home. And so often we don't hear about that local impact, but we hear about the foreigner who's doing an expedition and, and, and that's, you know, their life is lost and that's horrific too, but it's it's far more broadly felt. And because Jesse and I were with locals, our experience was incredibly personal and fragile the whole value of human life looked so different because people live their life moment to moment a lot more. There's not often planning too far ahead because there's almost no point to do it. Yeah. And Jesse and I were really, really wanting to do a section of our route in the Dolpa region. It's like the wild west in Nepal. I think when I did that potty with Dylan friends, um, like I spoke about that being like the pinnacle of what I thought that trip would be. And so we were hit with all these landslides. There were literally boulders all the way around us. And we were told that the weather forecast to get through that section was going to make it impassable. And Jesse and I were like, oh, well, that's why we came like to Nepal. Like, well, like let's just wait it out because the alternative was to go back the way we came or wait for a vehicle. But then we get told like there's no vehicle. So you're going to have to somehow on foot get your way to a point maybe get on a plane to then skip Constantly that section of the route. Solving, oh, and with yeah. such poor information around <laughs> us. No one's speaking English or very little English. People are looking at two women and going, concerned for us, going, women don't normally do this by themselves. Like, where's their male guide? So there was, a, we had to disseminate a lot of incorrect information. Um, and then we were like, let's just wait it out. We're like, oh, the t- clock is ticking. We've got 50 days to do this. I've got a four-and-a-half-year-old son that I've got to get back to. Like 50 days was my cap, which was already a very ambitious goal to traverse Nepal in 50. And then we waited and waited, and then you get to this point where you're like, oh, we've got to make it work, like relentless forward motion. So for a couple of days we kept trying to go on foot, like we'd get some gumboots in town. We had a, you know, um, an umbrella over a head. We had a garbage bag around our bags and it's pouring and more boulders are hitting us the road underfoot is completely breaking and people are running for their lives across these landslid areas and then jess and i were like what are we doing like what are we doing and we we had a couple of these moments where things just did not go to plan like we had so many natural disaster affected moments so many times where the route that we needed to go was impassable we had to catch multiple flights in really precarious locations in Nepal and we were like is there a sign telling us that we shouldn't be here like mother nature is stronger and more important than us and she knows better like we shouldn't be putting our lives at risk for this so that probably is the most that I've ever gotten to thinking I shouldn't be doing this and then the realization I got was no 
I think we can still do this, but it just has to look very different than what we thought. And that doesn't mean we've failed. In fact, let's capture what is a perceived failure and realize that there is growth in recrafting what is a reflection of reality. And that's what we did. We got on these flights. We we obviously had to admit sections of the route, which, you know, like it's a bit of ego going like, oh, we're not doing the exact route. And people in the outside world are like, oh, they didn't do it. Like they're not tough enough. And I'm like, why don't you get the fuck yeah. out of here and see what we're doing here? <laughs> Come have a look. Yeah, Come like, spend a week with us or yeah. a day. Come I'm like spend- literally see. And the stress, like we weren't sleeping, we weren't eating. Um, we couldn't access food. Like it was so, and we were at altitude and we were we had so much stress and cortisol going through our bodies trying to navigate, like not having a support crew to tell us what to and do. And trying to think clearly under all that stress as well, right? It was huge. And our friendship, like the, what I ca- what the what I learned that it's experience is the relationship that Jesse and I had was paramount. We were each other's support network. We were our, each other's family. Like she is my sister now. So it makes me emotional thinking about it. We preserved our relationship at all cost. That was the only thing that mattered. And from that, we were able to make decisions. We were able to laugh. You know, like when like some t- finally some planes started to come to this rural town um, that was in the Himalayan mountains. But because no planes had been out of getting there because of the weather for like a week, there was a backlog of people that needed to go. And then there was so much like bribery and corruption we kept getting delayed and delayed from leaving and every day our hopes would be like maybe we'll get on a plane today they're like no no plane for you <laughs> finally we got out it was only 12 people that got out that day we went on a plane with a dead body because someone had passed away and hadn't been able to get taken out and jesse and i just like and then our gopro got stolen the morning we were leaving like all our footage for this doco that we created ourselves like we finally got on this plane and then the gopro was stolen and I remember being on this small flight and just crying, going, oh, my God, like, can something please go right? Yeah. In the end, we got our GoPro either stolen or lost, I think, three or four times, and it kept, we kept getting it retrieved. How? Me, we would, like, offer money. Would we would, like, do, like, you know, like, we would do anything. And then it kept getting, like, put on planes and moved and one time I said I was a reporter for the BBC like it was just like wilder things how we managed to get this like we once lost it in an airport at the front of the airport and somehow it still got found Insane. like because we had met some British people in that particular town and they went back and then they started to offer people money and then like we got like police commissioners at the airport on board to help us like I mean and it's so you it's an insane story. And it's kind of like, I almost said like the GoPro like should have had its own story. So like mm. a documentary has come to life that Jeff, Jesse and I essentially created on our own. Yeah. Um, and like there's so much of beyond that story that people won't get to see in a way because it's just like we were living it as well. Yeah. And that's the challenge of when you go out and you do it unsupported in a sense, you capture what you can, but also like there's times when you're living what is the really challenging parts of that story. Thank you for sharing that story because that it's an incredible story. And the biggest thing that I probably got from that is that when you are going through really tough times is to be able to lean on friends. Yeah. Lean on having a good support network. That's yeah. probably the biggest thing. It was. And like we, but we had to cultivate that. It was like a constant reminder because it would be easy to fall into the trap of blaming each other. Like I, I remember one time I snapped at Jesse when the GoPro went missing and I'm very action biased and Jessie, when things are tense, she goes quiet. And I'm like, 
give me an answer. And she just went quiet. And it's just like, afterwards, we kind of just laughed at each other. We're like, like, oh my. just chill. Yeah. (laughs) But she was anxious too. We had different responses. And then we're like, our power is that we respond differently. So we had a lot of situations in Nepal where it was a really complicated, um, delicate environment that required us to advocate for our needs. And Jesse doesn't like conflict, so I would step in for those moments. And then after that, and that would be draining to do that, I would then step back. And then in the everyday, Jesse would navigate and source our food. And then we would like do this like unspoken passing of the batons because the beauty of doing something shared is you don't have to be everything. I could be who I was and we could use my strengths in the right situations and in, in the situations that serve Jesse best, she could lead. And so we were both sharing leadership and follower and like it's nice to be both. And uh, every time I have these conversations, I try and get little things that you can take into everyday life because mm. not everyone's going over to Nepal and no. thousands of kilometers, right? But that's a really beautiful thing where, yeah, knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, being able to rely on your friends and your family and your community to say, you know what, actually, this is this is my strong suit. Like, mm. this is where I need help and being able to talk about and liaising and communicating, which yeah. is huge. It was, yeah, it's special. It's, um, so that's what these experiences do. And you're right, you don't have to traverse a country. You just have to carve space to go beyond your normal. Is that, way, is that how um, her trail started? Yeah, it was. And how do you make this more a part of your everyday? So like her trails is my business um, with my co-founder, um, Beck Wilcock, who's based in California. And I have a team member, Lizzie Crouch, who's in New Zealand. And one of my best friends, Joe Nevin in the Blue Mountains, like my tribe of four women. And we have this. an incredible group of female educators in um, psychology, physical therapy, nutrition. And our job was, I almost wanted to like reverse engineer what I've done into the everyday context. So we provide online holistic trail running programs for women all the way from 10Ks up to 100K. We do immersive retreats uh, in the Lara Pinta region, Tasmania, always in locations that would be hard for you to do something like that by yourself. Um, I'm now doing like a mother and child experience in the Lara Pinta because after being there, I was like, mothers and their children need to experience like the power of the the red center the heart of australia where culture is so powerful and where time stands still time is irrelevant and it's always about who you who you are and how you show up in that space that really counts and for a child to see their mother have their regain their strength out of like maybe like the home environment it's it's super great for them to experience that so her trails really was a reflection of like, how do you make what, how do I translate the experiences that I've had in these maybe more extreme environments and take them into a more domestic context? That's amazing. Um, I had so many more questions, but I think we're running out of time. <laughs> I told you. That, like flew, the <laughs> that <laughs> went the so quick. I wanted to talk about Survivor and everything else, but um, no, that's okay. Sam. Um, <laughs> Survivor is so irrelevant when you I kind know. of like... Kim, yeah, priorities. priorities. Yeah, priorities. You, get, uh, you can do one Survivor, come on. If you, we'll do a f- quick fire Survivor question. Um, I didn't watch Survivor, so I can't comment. Oh, well, who cares then? <laughs> oh, my God. I was, th- I was thinking you might be like a Survivor no, fan. I'm like, not, I'll do I'm one not, for you. I'm not. Apologies. Um, Sam, thank you so much for oh. jumping on. Um, I am so inspired. Um, I know you don't use inspired often, but I am truly inspired by everything you're doing in the community. Um, everything you're doing with your charity work. So thank you so much for jumping on. Um, and I'm really excited to for the next episode. I'll watch Survivor beforehand. Yeah, no, my <laughs> pleasure. Thanks for having me. 